everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we have operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Matt Toporowski. He's a candidate for DA in Albany, New York. Welcome to our show, Matt. Hey, thanks for having me. So, um... Start by telling us why you're running for DA. Sure. So I had um, decided to run for DA um, really after uh, one of the cases I had as a uh, criminal defense attorney here locally. Um, I had been represent. I've been appointed to represent a young man named uh, Kaleem Lewis, uh, who had been charged with a gun gun possession after police had searched his home uh, in the middle of the night looking for a woman. A uh, woman's name was on the search warrant, and they're searching for her in an unrelated investigation. Um, she wasn't there, but they kept searching anyway. And ultimately, they found a gun in a Victoria's Secret clothing bag and a pile of women's dirty laundry, uh, but they charged uh, Colleen with this gun anyway. So when I met him, we quickly decided that we were headed to trial on this case. Uh, it wasn't his gun. Um, and uh, so when we're picking the jury, I knew we needed a fair jury, a jury that uh, was uh, diverse and reflected our community here in Albany. And it was certainly a jury of Colleen's peers. Um, I'd given him a suit, tie, a shirt, shoes to wear. Uh, so he looked his best for this jury. Uh, but pretty quickly, pretty quickly, um, I understood that it was going to be an uphill battle getting a jury uh, that reflected our community because a lot of the black and brown jurors had bad experiences with the DA's office and they were excused. They asked to be excused. Uh, we were down to two jurors, a black man and a black woman. They both said they could be fair and impartial. They could sit on this jury. Um, but the prosecutor at the time uh, challenged these jurors with no reason uh, and knocked them off the panel. Um, I objected. It was a discriminatory challenge against these two jurors. Um, but ultimately, the judge agreed with this prosecutor. I walked back to the table where Colleen was sitting. And at that moment, I just saw him slumped over in his chair. All hope had drained from his face. Um, you know, because he knew at that point you know, he wasn't going to get a fair trial. He had no one on this jury with lived experiences like, like he had. Um, he had a suburban jury, a all-white jury, and they went on to convict this young man. He was sentenced to 10 years. And so this was a moment where I saw the unfairness in our system um, really affect my client that I worked so hard for. And I had seen this happen a few times as a criminal defense attorney and, and when I was a prosecutor. 
um, and it's focused on convictions and winning because that's what this was about, the decision by this prosecutor to uh, increase her chances of winning and knocking these people off the jury that said they could be fair and impartial. Um, it's got to end. And in Albany County, uh, there is a culture of that, a culture of winning at all costs. Uh, the same trial evidence was produced to me the weekend before the trial. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm running to, to change that approach, to focus more on the truth in the process, the fairness in the process, um, and not just this winning at all costs mentality that really, really creates, um, you know, unfairness for a lot of people in the system. Yeah, it's very interesting, and I've been talking to uh, DAs and DA candidates all over the country who are reform-minded, and one of the common denominators is kind of changing the focus of the justice system from, you know, this adversarial win-at-all-costs approach to an approach that tries to do justice, and isn't that what a... DA is supposed to do. They're supposed to represent the people. The people don't want innocent people put away. Well, the American Bar Association defines the job of a prosecutor as doing justice. And that's a tall order. It's a big responsibility. And it's also, you know, not particularly clear. And so when you're in an adversarial system, which criminal justice system is, and you have traditional prosecutors in these roles, you know, their focus is going to be very simple, very, you know, simple-minded, myopic, just on this conviction and winnings. And so, you know, when we're trying to think about what the role is and justice means, it, it does mean more than that. You know, it means fairness. It means truth. Um, I'll give you a, a quote by Robert Jackson. He was a, a Supreme Court justice. He was the prosecutor at the uh, Nuremberg trials after World War II. And he said the role of prosecutor is to temper zeal with human kindness to serve the law and not factional purposes, um, to seek truth and not victims, and to always approach the task with humility. And that's the quote I had on my wall when I was an assistant uh, DA. And my colleagues, they had their press release convictions and their jury trial convictions um, tacked the wall like trophies. And that is a, a real difference. You know, it's, it's really not just winning. It's trying to find the truth in the process, seeking justice, being fair to everybody involved, the community, any victim, and of course the accused. And balancing all those interests is, is a very difficult job, um, but it is the job of a DA. So backing up a step, uh, obviously you've been a prosecutor, you've been a defense attorney, uh, but w what is your broader background? Sure. So, um, you know, I mean, just personally, I mean, I grew up in a small town about an hour south of Albany. Uh, called Saugerties, and um, yeah, I went to college here in Albany at the College of St. Rose. Um, you know, we I decided to go here because you know we visit my grandparents often. They lived over in a town called Schenectady. Uh, both were teachers, retired from local high school, um, and uh, you know I decided to go into to law because during college I worked at uh, U.S. Attorney's Office here in Albany, federal prosecutor, and during my time there, I saw a uh, federal uh, terrorism sting trial. There was two Muslim men on trial. One was a local imam. Uh, one was a pizza shop owner. And the government conducted this sting where they sent in an informant. And the informant kept asking, do they want to be involved in this plot, involved in this plot? You know, and finally these you know, men agreed. And so, you know, while I was learning about civil liberties in the classroom, 
and I'm watching this terrorism sting trial unfold, it just sort of collided for me with the role the prosecutor is, you know, uh, weighing, balancing the citizen safety and really the citizen civil liberties. Um, and that really attracted me to this job um, because I knew how important it was and future lawyers of America or the country would have a really important task and a really important role. And that's the moment that I decided to go into um, law and go into prosecution. So for my listeners who may not know, Albany is the state capital of New York, and I'm sitting about 15 minutes from the state capital of California. So uh, we're connecting coast to coast here, um, but I'm wondering what issues are facing Albany and what unique challenges it has being the state capital. Sure. And um, just for the listeners, I was born in San Jose, so I originally was a, a Californian, and then uh, my parents moved to uh, to New York when I was really young. But, I mean, you know, being the state's capital, the DA's office here is, is really important, critically important, because the DA can literally walk across the street to the state legislator and advocate for progressive reform, for progressive change, um, or they can advocate for, you know, rollbacks and, and regressive changes in criminal justice. In 2019, the legislator passed um, historic criminal justice reforms, reforms to bail, reforms to discovery, and reforms to speedy trial. And the DA here in Albany, um, he opposed those reforms as head of the DA's association in New York. Um, we also here in uh, the state legislator uh, passed uh, one of its first of its kind commission on prosecutorial conduct. And this is a commission much like we have a judicial commission here that would look into prosecutors' um, decisions and cases and make sure they're acting ethically and uh, disclosing evidence. And the DA here actually sued, he's a named plaintiff, sued to block that commission from going into effect. A commission, meanwhile, that was passed with full bipartisan support by the state legislator. And so it's an important race because, um, well, look, New York is, is a, like California, has been a leader in some progressive reform and in criminal justice reform, uh, the state capital where the laws are passed that affect, you know, millions of people. The DA here is particularly a important role because their opinions are heard louder than the other DAs in, in, in the smaller parts of the state. They can walk across the street and advocate for reform. The DA here did just the opposite. Now, certainly, I plan to uh, push for these reforms, these, these important reforms to bail on discovery and a speedy trial because they bring much more fairness to the process. So, um, you know, we've been talking with a few people from New York, so it feels like we've been having this discussion a lot. But, uh, you know, what are your thoughts on the bail reform and kind of the, the rollback on it? Um, and where things need to go uh, in order to kind of get it right? You know, my thoughts on bail are um, that it's been used incorrectly and really to, um, you know, hold people pre-trial while legally innocent um, for a long time. Um, you know, the purpose of bail has always been to make sure the person returns to court. You know, here in New York, it's been used quite a bit uh, just to hold people pre-trial, ultimately to you know, leverage pleas, um, time served pleas, um, 
And so the reforms were this massive step forward that we weren't going to set bail on misdemeanors, petty offenses by definition, and nonviolent felonies. Uh, so people that are legally innocent are out pre-trial, are out pre-pre-trial, can meet with their lawyers more often, can review evidence with their lawyers, can make more intelligent decisions about their cases, can continue working in whatever job they have, can keep their homes, stay with their families, make sure that they are able to pay their rent. Um, you know, people understand that, you know, if you're held in jail pre-trial and you don't have $300 to $400 cash, which, you know, the average person doesn't have in an emergency, it's just a whole list of consequences flow from that. I mean, just unpaid bills can pile up. I mean, I've talked to people who have been in on misdemeanors and in Albany, 60% of the jail population before these reforms were in their pre-trial on misdemeanors. Your bills can pile up, your credit goes down of the drain. And so there's a lot of effects here. And so these reforms brought more fairness to the system. They were long overdue and I was in fully, fully in support of them um, before they were passed. And, 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 and certainly after they were passed, I stood with the advocates across the street here at the state ab- at state Capitol and um, advocated to keep these reforms in place. You know, we, we, we chanted no rollbacks. Um, unfortunately, the legislator cave during this, you know, worldwide pandemic, um, almost the most dangerous time, well, the most dangerous time to be putting people, innocent people, pre-trial in jail, life or death consequences, they ultimately ultimately caved. And honestly, that was a result of this fear-mongering campaign that really um, the DA's association here in Albany uh, was a part of, and certainly uh, the DA here in Albany um, also led the charge in that, and that, that's really unfortunate. You know, it's interesting. The first time I had heard of the issue of reforming bail was probably eight or nine years ago, and nobody was talking about it at the time. But uh, this public defender in San Francisco, a guy named Jeff Adachi, who actually died last year, uh, was putting on this program. And I'm like, bail reform? That's crazy. And, and But they made the point, you know, if you commit a crime or you're alleged to have committed a crime and uh, you can't afford to pay, uh, you know, $1,000 or $900 to get out, then, then you're going to sit in there. Um, but if you can afford to pay, then you're out. So does that make it any safer for the for the world if you're rich enough to get out? Does that mean you're less of a threat to society? I mean... Uh, and it made sense. Um, the system has, in some ways, really, you know, uh, accelerated toward this because everybody's talking about it now. But in a way, you know, most places still have cash bail. Yeah. And um, I mean, you bring up a good point that, you know, you heard about this issue, you know, seven or eight years ago. You know, I came across a quote from Robert F. Kennedy in 1964 as the attorney general addressing um, Congress. And he said, um, you know, we have two systems of justice in our country, um, one for the rich man, one for the poor man, and in no place is that more prevalent than in the area of bail. Um, and so this has always been an issue. It's been, it's been an issue since then. Um, but the, the reality is it's, it's easy to lobby and, 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 and stoke fear and frighten people about having people that are charged with crimes 
released and in, 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 in be in our society pre-trial. And so it's easy for them to, to get behind that and say, this person's out, crime's going to go up, crimes will be committed. That's an easy media pitch. But the reality of the situation is, and the people I've talked to is, is that, you know, what's happening is people are going to court because they want to resolve their cases because they are, they want to be accountable. They want to move forward. You know, they want to move forward with their lives, with their jobs. And that's just not as savory as of a news story. Yeah, and I was just talking to uh, a guy who's going to run in uh, New Orleans, and you know he was making the point: most of these people are going to be out in six months anyway. So what you're, all you're really doing, is, uh, by holding them in custody, is keeping them an extra six months. And these days, you know, six months could expose you to COVID and all sorts of other dangers. Yeah, and I mean, these dangers really have always existed in the criminal justice system. I mean, you know, there's all sorts of facts and studies out there, but the reality is, you know, once you put someone in jail, um, they're, you know, you know, much more likely to recommit a crime or experience some trauma that's going to cause uh, more issues in their lives. And so, right, now it's a life or death situation because this terrible disease is spreading like wildfire in prisons, certainly here in New York and Rikers Island and New York City and in other counties, um, and it really highlights, you know, the fact that you know, jails aren't the safest uh, place for people. They don't solve the problems or the root causes, the root drivers of crime. I mean, jails really are uh, the least least um, effective and most expensive way to address a lot of these issues that, that lead to crime. And so it just exacerbates really the problem, um, and this is forcing us, forcing us, COVID is forcing us to find you know, some better solutions. You know, now people are more in support of no bail because certainly if you bail someone now, you know, they're going to be in a life or death, death situation. And now people are in support of releasing the elderly or the aging. Um, but that's, these are always been issues that we should have been, have been on the forefront. So talk to us about who your opponent is, um, the current DA. Um, what's he about? Um, why you think he's wrongheaded? Sure. Sure. So my opponent is David Soares. He's been there 16 years. Um, you know, I worked for him at one point uh, in this office. And like I said, I resigned. I disagreed with a lot of the policies. I thought that he punished just to punish. And, you know, since starting this campaign, uh, many prosecutors that have left that office that I've spoken with have left for the same reasons as me. And they've been, you know, helping out with my campaign. So this has been an ongoing issue. Um you know, Albany County has a 50% higher incarceration rate than the state's average, and that's been under David Soares. Um, and the real full circle point of this is that, you know, he came in in 2004 endorsed by the Working Families Party. And this election, uh, the Working Families Party has endorsed, you know, me and my campaign. Um, so it really is a full circle moment, and it's because David Soares, is, he's not lived up to the progressive uh, name that he made for himself when he campaigned in 04. In fact, he's actually become regressive, led us to have this high incarceration rate, hasn't kept up with reforms, participated in the fear-mongering campaign of the DA's association to roll back the 2019 criminal justice reforms, sued to block the Commission on Prosecutorial Conduct, and really otherwise has been absent from the office. I mean, there was a decision recently from our Supreme Court here because he was subpoenaed to testify because he had a prosecutor in his office that was 
handling appeals for a local criminal defense attorney while trying cases against that person. And so it was a huge issue of impropriety. And they had to uh, get the actual DA on the record to get see if he had knowledge of this. And the staff had knowledge of this because it was a huge conflict of interest, obviously. And he testified on in open court that he's never been on the record in a courtroom since he was elected uh, 16 years ago. And in Albany, this is, is a smaller county. And it's not unique for DAs in upstate smaller counties to actually been, be trying cases and prosecuting cases, rolling up the sleeves with the assistants and doing the hard work. And so, you know, my plan for this office and why I'm running is to lead by example, be the first one in, last one out, uh, support important criminal justice reform, uh, the criminal justice reform movement that has been occurring across the country in big cities and bring it to New York's capital, Albany. Um, so explain what compassionate prosecution is. You know, compassionate prosecution is about giving people second chances uh, where you can and always seeking uh, fair sentences. When I think about compassionate prosecution, I think about you know, the countrywide pandemic of mass incarceration. The fact that the state of, I'm sorry, the country leads the world uh, in incarceration and the population here that we have in our prisons uh, far out, outweighs and is far larger than any of the next uh, countries in line here. And so it's thinking about people first and the fact that you, the job is people prosecuting people. So it's imperfect. And so in that role, you are always thinking about sort of more of a holistic approach here. When I, when I did the job, I always thought about, um, you know, how do I, how do I resolve this case and hopefully never see this person back here again? You know, and so if that was, more treatment or more diversion services. I focused in on that. I always took the input from the public defenders and certainly our, our judges who, um, you know, approved any plea bargains and just brought a team approach to it to try and resolve the case in the best manner that would uh, see that justice was done, person wouldn't return to the criminal justice system, get the help that they needed. And in terms of sentences, make sure you're seeking fair sentences. And so for young people, you're definitely looking at the fact that um, as a young person, you want to make sure that if you can avoid that criminal conviction, uh, maybe give them a youthful offender status or uh, divert them out of the system, that that's what you're doing. Uh, because really the solution here is not to incarcerate more, seek more convictions. It's really sort of to try and get to the root causes of the issue, root causes of crime, different approach, compassionate approach. Um, in what ways can we reduce our incarceration rate? You know, they've been doing things in, you know, very progressive, proactive uh, cities like Philadelphia, where the DA there, Larry Krasner, he has assistance put on the record at sentencing, um, sort of the justification for that sentence while taking into account the cost uh, to the city uh, to incarcerate that person. And so you're taking into account sort of the you know, taxpayer's wallet and the expense of this um, and justifying that. And so beyond just saying we're going to seek shorter sentences, even when you're seeking sort of shorter sentences, you're justifying overall, you know, what's the real benefit and real cost of incarcerating this person? And that's on the back end. And the front end, you're saying, um, you know, there's certain cases that you're not going to prosecute. And you're asking yourself, who are you prosecuting by what you're prosecuting? And so if you're prosecuting petty larcenies that are, you know, thefts under a hundred dollars 
and people are purchase or people are stealing things that they need to survive, then you are criminalizing poverty. And maybe we shouldn't be saddling these people with misdemeanor convictions or jail or probation, but we should be diverting them to the treatment services they need and getting the help they need so they can survive and not just become a sort of victim in, in the criminal justice system that really chews people up. So you're declining to prosecute certain crimes. You're seeking shorter sentences, um, even on probation and, and, and parole. You're, you know, you're not prosecuting uh, technical violations. I mean, those can jam people up if they're late for an appointment or, or they're out too late. You know, they get thrown back in and that just starts the whole cycle again. And so, uh, you know, reducing mass incarceration occurs on the front end and on the back end in criminal justice. One of the things I, I think a lot of people don't recognize, but I think the reformers are, are recognizing is that people basically have this life cycle in, in crime. And so, you know, when, when you're in your 20s, maybe your teens, uh, up until the time you're 30 or so, you're, you're much more likely to commit a crime than you are later in life. And so once you get past 30, it starts going down. And, and by the time people are, you know, in their 50s and 60s and, uh, you know, even more in their 70s, um, people are not committing crimes anymore. And yet the way we've structured our sentencing system, they're still being locked up. We're still paying money. In fact, they're more expensive when they get older because they have more health care needs. Um, and, and that just doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? Yeah, I mean, there, there definitely is a movement um, to, you know, uh, release and reduce uh, sentences for people, you know, over 55 or over 65, you know, because right at that point you are, you know, you're housing someone that is, um, you know, most likely not a da- the danger they once were to society. And, you know, when I think of this, I always think of Morgan Freeman and Shawshank Redemption, where he keeps coming up to the parole board and they keep stamping, denied, denied, denied. And then finally he just says, you know what? I wish I could go back. I wish I could talk to myself, that young man at that time in my life and tell tell him what a mistake he was making. But I can't do that, you know, and I am, I am reformed. I've been here, you know, 20 years. Uh, I'm not a threat to society at, at this point anymore. And he's really reformed himself. And then, you know, the guy finally stamps approved and he's released. Um, and so, you know, we got to get rid of this knee jerk reaction, you know, uh, that I think is, uh, caused by sort of a, a, a mindset that you don't want something to blow back on you, politically speaking, if you're going to advocate for, you know, early release on parole or release of, you know, our aging prison population or, you know, commuting, advocating for commuting the sentences, commuting the sentences of, you know, older people and uh, people uh, that are medically at risk. But the reality is, now, these people have served their time. Um, we're just housing them, and right, it's, it's, taxpayers spending money on it, and we should be thinking certainly differently about this approach here to criminal justice. So you've mentioned a few times uh, prosecutorial misconduct uh, reform. Um, what's happening with that, and explain how that works. Sure. So this is sort of a, one of the key uh planks of my platform is, is establishing a conviction integrity unit in the office. Albany doesn't have one. And really, it's really broader than that. It's a conviction integrity and transparency unit. And so not only are we you know, proactively looking at convictions 
uh, to make sure that there wasn't misidentification by a witness or failure to turn over evidence by a prosecutor, looking for gross violations of constitutional rights and, and actual innocence. But also another component of this unit will be a compliance department, um, a Brady compliance department, and, and making sure that prosecutors are are trained to identify information that's favorable to the defense or that tends to negate guilt, and that's being turned over. And, and creating a culture where prosecutors are identifying it, turning over, turning that over, and are rewarded for it. And this compliance unit, much like in the, the corporate world, you know, will do a quarterly audit on our cases to make sure that we are complying with our ethical standards as prosecutors. And if there are blatant violations, you know, that's going to be cause for termination. If there are negligent violations, those are teaching moments, and you want to shift the culture here. Uh, but it's so critical that prosecutors are acting ethically, understanding their duty uh, to right to seek justice and fairness and turning over evidence that could negate guilt that's favorable to defense. Because if they don't and they're cutting corners, that's where wrongful convictions occur. That's where wrongful convictions occur. And the reality is if you convict 100 people and one of those people are innocent, you know, there's no justice done. I mean, you, you see some of these exonerations on the innocence files on Netflix, I mean, and, and there's one gentleman actually from California on the show, uh, The Innocence Files, uh, his name is Frankie. can't recall his last name at this point, but I mean, it's one of the most powerful Frankie things you Carrillo. see. Someone, Frankie Carrillo, right, who ran for office there. You know, I mean, it, and you, you see the patience with these people that they, I mean, it's one of the most powerful things to see someone exonerated after 30 years, 33 years for crime they never committed based on false testimony. And so... It is critical that prosecutors are acting ethically, that they are not just acting ethically, but that they are, they are making sure and they're looking. And they're turning over favorable evidence. They're being critical, a watchful eye, and that's a culture shift. And so, you know, I'm working to do that. Uh, I, I want to put this unit in place in, in my office, and I'm working with action, working with people who have been wrongfully convicted and exonerated um, on this unit, uh, people like Jeff. Uh, Deskinovich and It Could Happen to You, uh, their organization. I've consulted law professors here at NYU um, to really make sure that this unit is is doing a proactive job of ensuring prosecutors are acting ethically, that we're looking at convictions that uh, potentially potentially are, uh, we convicted someone that is actually innocent. And the last piece to that is a police misconduct database. And this just means that we are tracking general misconduct by police, you know, potential, you know, prior lawsuits, disciplinary records, because that information really should be public. And it is public in places like Chicago and New York City, uh, you know, because, again, in this adversarial system that is that is criminal justice, you have people that, you know, they're looking to win and looking to convictions. And that goes from prosecutors to police. Um, and we have to be watchful of that and make sure that we are not convicting someone that shouldn't be behind bars. So it's critical. And in New York, uh, the state legislator put in place and passed bipartisan support, full bipartisan support, a commission on prosecutorial conduct. It was recommended by the New York State Bar Association um, and, the, and the DA here in Albany, David Soros, he is the named plaintiff, has sued uh, to block that commission from going into effect. Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, you, you brought up the case of Frankie Carrillo and you know, we know Frankie because he came out uh, to speak uh, in our area 
uh, right after he was released. And that was an incredible story because, first of all, it uh, illustrates exactly how bad um, eyewitness identification can be, especially in a dark place. But, you know, the, the most interesting part of that story is they managed to convince the judge to come out to the, the crime scene, which never happens. And, uh, and uh, Ellen Eggers, uh, who actually lives out uh, in, in my neck of the woods, uh, tells it great because uh, she describes how she's standing right next to the prosecutor when, uh, when they do the drive-by simulation. And, and the prosecutor uh, uh, suddenly gets on his cell phone, calls up his boss and says, you can't see shit. <laughs> wow <laughs> and, and it was this powerful moment because because you know then, then you're wondering okay is the da gonna fight this or is the da gonna do the right thing um and, and you just never know what's gonna happen with these da's yeah and it, i mean it brings the point home of now this particular uh, detective that was on frankie's case i mean this was a unit in that part of the county um, that had this notorious reputation for being almost like a gang of police, of uh, sheriff's department. And so it, let's say that this particular detective that he had prior misconduct or prior, uh, you know, has, had, had, had issues with the police department. Um, if we had a database, you know, if there's a database then of all the prior misconduct or any false testimony, questionable practices, you know, maybe Frankie would never have been put behind bars because the prosecutor on the case would look at the database and said, okay, it's this particular detective. He's had these issues. Let me dig a little deeper here. Maybe let me go to that, that scene myself. Maybe let me um, look at this evidence more closely, talk to these witnesses a little bit more, almost cross-examine the witnesses myself. Rather than trying to seek the conviction there, you know, looking at it more objectively with that knowledge. And if there was a police misconduct database back then i think that the result would have been different potentially frankie wouldn't have been in there for you know 33 years and then the other side of the coin is really interesting so yesterday i was interviewing uh the st louis da kim gardner and she's talking about their high profile uh wrongful conviction case and in that case their office did everything that you're you're suggesting. Um, there are all sorts of questions about it, and and they are recommending that uh, the conviction be vacated. And now they're having to fight the uh, the attorney general. So you have the DA's oh. office that prosecuted fighting against the attorney general's office. Well, it shows it that situation to me shows how entrenched uh, this culture is of just you know basically traditional. Tough on crime, law and order, prosecution. The job is simply to uh, you know, put the evidence forward, seek a conviction, seek a punishment. You know, when that, it's really not the job. Again, the job is to seek justice and seek the truth. And I mean, you know, that is such a, a, a difference and so important that, you know, you need to be looking at this critically because the reality is, and everybody knows it, if you go, if you sit on a jury and the prosecutor's there and he says, I, and he or she, she says, I represent the people. I represent justice. That is powerful. And that is very powerful. And no matter how hard an innocent person works or how good of a lawyer they have, I think prosecutors always start with the advantage. They are the, they are the guys or the girls with the white hat, you know? And so that's very powerful. I and mean, you need to use that powerful role 
very carefully, very critically. And uh, that's why the culture needs to shift to seeking the truth, making sure you get it right. Because we've seen in this country, there's been over almost 3,000 people exonerated. I mean, we haven't gotten it right every time, that's for sure. Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the problems is that the jury comes into these cases with the presumption of guilt, not the presumption of innocence. They believe that the system has worked up until this point and that this person would not be there if they hadn't committed a crime. And so the only way you get acquittals, in my experience of watching trials for the last 10 years, is if you prove them innocent. Yeah. You know what? And, 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 and like, look, I brought up that, that case where I saw the situation where, you know, it really drove me to run because, again, everything in this case was pointing at someone that the police were actually investigating. Um, and they did not go forward with that. They just, this was the easier route. This kid was sleeping in a room. The guns found here, you know, must be his, and they charge him. And no matter how hard I worked, um, and the jury was out on that case for about a day and a half. And I thought for sure. We got a mistrial here. We got a mistrial here. You know, we thought we were going to get a not guilty because there was nothing pointing to the fact that this kid's gun, or that he's asleep in a room, it's across the room in a pile of dirty laundry in a woman's Victoria's Secret bag. There's a woman's name on the search warrant searching for her. Um, But yet, I mean, I was just, you know, shocked. Jury comes back guilty. And, you know, if the the burden was was, uh, beyond a reasonable doubt, I mean, there was so much doubt in that case, but that's it, not what it, what it is actually for the jury. It's, it's more like a more likely than not that we think. I mean, it's very hard for them to conceptualize. And that's, again, why the person that does the charging, that does the prosecuting, that makes the plea bargains, that forces the trials or not, is someone who's thinking so critically about all these issues. Otherwise, you lead to situations of, uh, you know, clear unfairness, mass incarceration, and, and worst-case scenario, wrongful convictions. So you guys are in the stretch drive, right? You're only a few weeks away. Yeah, we are. I mean, we're closing in on, geez, we're under 60 days now, and so we're certainly making, you know, a bigger fundraising push. You know, we're on the phone with voters every day, making a lot of phone calls. Um, we got our mail our mail program teed up and ready to go, and so we'll get our, our mail out soon. Um, certainly working on more of our our media and our press and we got an article in the paper today and, and uh, you know, I think we're going to get some more press when we roll out our conviction integrity and transparency unit. Um, but, you know, look, it's, it's also a different situation here because it's a worldwide pandemic and the governor here just canceled the presidential primary. And so a lot of people are, are not even sure if they are, if there's a primary June 23rd and there is, there's a down ballot primary, very important race, the Albany district attorney race. And so it's about making sure we're activating, you know, our people, our base. You know, there's, there's a good progressive base here in Albany County, a lot of Bernie supporters, a lot of Elizabeth Warren supporters. And, you know, we have the Working Families Endorsement, um, and we're making sure people know that and uh, just kind of getting out there, word, word of mouth, on the phone, identifying our people, um, and just putting in that hard work of, of going to get out that vote. Well, we are out of time. I want to thank you for coming on our show. You bet. No, I'm happy to be here. I appreciate it. All right. That was Matt Toporowski. He's running for DA in Albany County in New York, and the election is coming up less than 60 days away. 
You've been listening to Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald, and join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mouse Quake Barrett for the use of our opening, Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.